Good morning and welcome to worship this All Saints Day. Paul in his letter to the Colossians tells us to give thanks to the Father who has made you fit to share the heritage of God's people in the realm of light. As we gather our worship with the worship of those who surround the throne in heaven, let us pray together the words of the Collect. Almighty God, you have knit together your elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of your Son. Give us grace to follow your blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that we may come to those inexpressible joys which you have prepared for those who perfectly love you through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And so to our first hymn of praise, if you're at home, sing along. If you're in the hall and want to stand and, and listen uh, together, please do so. The hymn, I the Lord of Sea and Sky.
Today, as we continue our journey from creation to Christ, we come to the books of Joshua and the Judges. And as you might expect, this part of the story of the, the people of God and these books of the Bible deal with one main topic. That is the topic of judgment. The Bible is absolutely clear. God judges sin. He always has. He always will. It's something that folks don't like to hear about or think about, so they don't really like the books of Joshua and Judges, because in them we see God bringing judgment against large numbers of people, and that doesn't make us feel good inside. It bothers us. It makes us cringe. And I think, actually, that's a good thing, because we shouldn't feel good about people being punished. We shouldn't feel good about people suffering. If we did, that would mean that we have something very wrong with us. You know, we don't feel good about people being punished and suffering precisely because, as the book of Genesis tells us, we are made in God's image. We don't feel good about people being punished and suffering because God doesn't feel good about judging people. But he does the right thing, even when it's hard. On Friday night, as we always do, we were having our family film night. We were watching the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade film. And at its heart, it's really just exploring the theme of good and evil. And we see that all the time in films and on television programmes. Think of Star Wars, that small band of heroes standing against a mighty empire. Or Superman or Spider-Man, or Iron Man, and the plethora of other superheroes who fight an ongoing battle against those who would harm ordinary human beings. And then there are TV shows with real police officers or fictional detectives combating criminal individuals and gangs of villains, the lone hero often standing against the terrorists. These are the, the timeless stories of good versus evil, that eternal theme. And another word for evil, a Bible word for evil, is sin. And sin is serious. And ultimately, sin is fatal. I wonder if you saw the piece in the news this week about the woman who had part of her leg removed in surgery and it was taken to another hospital and blasted with radiation to kill off a tumour that was in the bone. And then the healthy bone was returned to her leg. It was quite remarkable to see that operation. Left alone that tumour, well, it could have killed her. It had to be completely excised, completely obliterated. And the Bible says it's just the same with sin. For the Bible is God's revelation to us. Every page of the Bible draws us into the story of God and God's people. And consistently, the Bible tells us that God is without sin. So don't you find it interesting that on almost every page of the Bible, all these different pages, the Bible addresses the theme of sin. Now, not God's sin, of course, but our sin, your sin and my sin. And in the whole of the Bible, let me show you, it's only these first two chapters, this much of the Bible, in which God uses the pages of Scripture to describe a sinless world. Just two sides of a page. That's how much of the Bible is devoted to the world that we lived in before sin entered into the human story. And then if we were to turn to the, to the back of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, well again we, we find there just these last two chapters, chapters 21 and 22. Well they, they describe a world that is still sinful but they describe a new world that will come about that has no sin, a world that is without sin. So just two pages, and on every other page of the Bible, all these pages of Scripture, the Bible talks to us about sin, and more specifically, it talks about our sinfulness, and it names our sinfulness as the reason Jesus had to come and die in our place. And it points to the fact that Jesus has redeemed us and has offered us salvation in himself. If we would just repent, if we would just turn from our sin, if we would just believe 
and place our faith in him, our trust in him for our salvation. And friends, that's what we've been reading about over these past few Sundays on our journey from creation to Christ. We've been reading about our sin and our need for a saviour. Remember Adam and Eve? They sinned in the garden and were cast out. Then we read that Cain killed his brother Abel. And then the whole world went in a, a kind of downward spiral of sin. It was so bad that God judged the entire world through the flood in the days of Noah. But he spared the most blameless man on earth and his family. But what happened to that most blameless man after he got out of the ark? He sinned. You see, even the best of us can't be perfect. We still sin. And after Noah, God called Abraham to, to leave his home and go to a land that he would show him and that he would give him the land and that he would make him a great nation in order to point all of the other nations to himself. And what did Abraham, this man called by God, what did Abraham do over and over again? He sinned. Within three months of God promising Abraham that he would have a son with his wife Sarah and that through her God would give him offspring that would form a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand in the seashore. Abraham gave his wife Sarah to a king because he was afraid that the king would kill him. He gave his wife away and his son Isaac fell into the same sins and Jacob constantly sinned destroying his family just like his father Isaac. And then we get to Joseph. Now, Joseph was, a, was about a good role model. He was about as good a role model as we could ask for. And we need people like Joseph in the Bible to show us how we are to live and what to do in hard times when we come across them in our lives. But you know, even Joseph was bitter and vengeful towards his brothers, throwing them in jail. One of them he kept in jail for two years because he did not forgive them for what they had done to him. Of course, eventually, after two years, he, he finally broke down and forgave his brothers. But throughout Joseph's life, we, we see constant sinfulness. There's the sinfulness of his brothers, the sinfulness of Potiphar's wife and then Potiphar himself. We see the sinfulness of Pharaoh and of Moses. Pharaoh killed countless human and male Hebrew babies. Moses killed an Egyptian. And we see God judge Pharaoh and Egypt and all of their false gods. And then God saves the Israelites by judging Pharaoh's army. And the Israelites themselves become the ones who constantly rebel against God. And we see God constantly judging the sins of the Israelites. As they're on their wilderness wanderings, he sends plagues against them. 3,000 are killed after they worship the golden calf. He sends snakes into the camp and they have to look on a, on a bronze snake hung on a pole in order to live. And finally, he, he doesn't allow the generation who left Egypt to enter the promised land. They had to wander the desert for 40 years until that whole generation had passed away. And he even judges Moses' sin by not allowing Moses to enter the promised land either. And so as we have come through all that part of the story today, we now come to the book of Joshua and the judges. So let's listen to the word of God as it's read for us. The book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, Get ready to cross the river Jordan into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, 
to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, Go through the camp and tell the people, Get your provisions ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses the servant of the Lord gave you after he said, the Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men, ready for battle, must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan, towards the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. The book of Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. But before Moses died, he laid his hands upon this man Joshua, appointing Joshua as his successor. And at last, under Joshua's leadership, the promise became the possession as the Israelites entered into their inheritance in the land of Canaan. And then towards the end of the book of Joshua, as an old man, we read that Joshua challenged Israel to remain true to, to God's covenant, to Yahweh's covenant. And after Joshua's death, throughout a period of nearly 200 years, Israel was ruled by so-called judges, and yet the same cycle of backsliding, of oppression and deliverance, that kept repeating itself again and again. You would think that as the people of Israel left behind their 40 years of wilderness wanderings to enter into this new land, this land of milk and honey, that things would get better, that life would be lovely. But as we read the book of Joshua and Judges, we discover that the story is full of bloodshed. After crossing the, the river Jordan and, and circumcising the, the, the Israelites, Joshua first turned south and he routed a, a coalition army that was led by five Amorite kings. And then he turned and he marched north where he defeated another coalition of armies. And finally, having captured the, the whole land, he began to allocate its territory, a different part to each of the 12 tribes. And as soon as God had brought the nation of Israel into the land of promise, he ordered them to kill everyone who lived there. And to our modern sensibilities, that just seems so completely wrong. 
Surely the people who were living in the land were just innocent people who happened to be living in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we can't read the story of Israel's conquest without asking ourselves about the ethics of that kind of campaign with its policy of total destruction. And we have to ask, can the holy God of Israel really have ordered this slaughter? It's very hard. But firstly, think about the promise made to the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith. Repeatedly, we read in Scripture that God had promised the land to Abraham's descendants. But the possession of that land would not have been possible without the dispossession of its former inhabitants. And secondly, there was the wickedness of the people already living in the land of Canaan. Abraham told his descendant, was told that his descendants would inherit that land only when the sin of the Amorites had reached its full measure. We read that way back in Genesis 15. It took 400 years from the making of that promise. And in all that time, God was being patient and long-suffering with the Amorite people, even though he knew that they would not repent, that they would not turn to him. Still, he waited for 400 years until their sinfulness just got to the point where he would finally judge them. And when he did finally decide to allow the, the people of Israel to cross over the Jordan River, he made it very clear to them that it wasn't because of their righteousness that God was judging these other people with the sword, but that it was because of the Canaanite's sinfulness that he was judging them. So disgusting and idolatrous and immoral was the Canaanite fertility religion, including the abomination of child sacrifices, that their ejection by the people of Israel was portrayed as the land almost vomiting them out. And God even warned Israel that if she defiled the land, then he would vomit her out as he had vomited out the nations. We read that in Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy. Thirdly, there was the danger of corruption. Moses had told the Israelites, make no treaty with them. They were to destroy all Canaan's idolatry because Israel was meant to be a people holy to the Lord their God. They were to have nothing to do with the idolatrous, detestable practices that they found in Canaan. They were not to violate Yahweh's covenant with them. And this holy war that we read in the book of Joshua and Judges is the only one authorised by God, the only one authorised by Yahweh. If Israel had obeyed God, if Israel had done what they were told and totally destroyed the Canaanites and their corrupt practices, if they had cleared the land completely, then all the future conflicts with the surrounding tribes would not have become necessary. Just like these surgeons who this week we learned had treated the woman's bone cancer, we are called to radical surgery in relation to sin.
I see Nothing but the blood of Jesus For my cleansing this my plea Nothing but the blood of Jesus Oh, precious is the flow That makes me white as snow No other fount I know Nothing but the blood of Jesus Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Naught of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus This is all my hope and peace Nothing but the blood of Jesus This is all my righteousness Nothing but the blood of Jesus Precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. In just a couple of days, the federal elections going on in the United States of America will come to an end and new people will be appointed to their governing hierarchy and there may be a change in the presidency. We just don't know at this time, but we certainly have to pray for the people of America that they would regain something uh, of the, the, the sense of godly values that uh, inspired many who first established that nation. Yes, they've had faults all through their history. They have, certainly have faults today. And I'm not saying which uh, side people should be voting on, but we certainly have to pray for them. In these closing days before the elections in America, there was the rather rushed appointment of a lady called Amy Coney Barrett. She was the Republican nominee to serve on the United States Supreme Court. And many in that land and, and around the world feel that this appointment was somewhat rushed to get it through before uh, the elections that end just in a couple of days. I guess that when we hear the word judge or judges, that's the kind of person we're thinking of. The men and women sitting in the courts, presiding over the finer points of, of law or dealing with criminal activity. Back at the start of February, when uh, I was involved in taking a, a party of high school students from Creef High School to uh, visit New York, one of the visits we made was to the New York State Supreme Court. And there that day, we, we got into the courts, we got to see the courts in action, and everything was being dealt in these courts that day, from the very small things like the non-payment of fines, to the very serious case involving the former Hollywood film producer, Harvey Weinstein. Thankfully, not many of us will have to enter a court, perhaps, yes, on jury duty, perhaps to give evidence, but from TV shows like Perry Mason or, or down to modern times like Judge Rinder, uh, series on TV like Law and Order, we're all aware of the court structure and the importance of the judge. And in one sense, that was the role of the people whose story is told in the book of Judges, the book of Samuel. But these judges were so much, much more. At the end of the book of Joshua, after the death of faithful Joshua, we read that Israel lapsed for nearly 200 years into a very 
depressing cycle of disobedience and oppression and deliverance. Firstly, we read that they forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of Egypt. And they began worshipping the gods of the people around them, provoking God, provoking Yahweh to anger. And then secondly, we read that Yahweh handed them over to the raiders who plundered them and defeated them in battle and oppressed them. And then thirdly, in answer to the people's cry, the, the Lord God raised up judges, judges who delivered the people of Israel from their oppressors. But the people refused to listen to their deliverers. And so that dismal cycle of backsliding, of defeat and recovery was repeated again and again. These so-called judges really combine several different functions. First and foremost, they were military leaders. They were men and women whom Yahweh had raised up to rescue Israel from her oppressors. And so we read that Ehu delivered Israel from the Moabites, Deborah from the Canaanites, Gideon from the Midianites, Jephthah from the Ammonites and Samson from the Philistines. And next we read that they were spiritual leaders. They were people of faith and people filled at times with the Spirit, although they exhibited their devotion to Yahweh in different ways and to different degrees. And thirdly, they were in that more conventional sense judges, as their name indicates, going on the judging circuit round the land, hearing the cases that were referred to them and they administered justice throughout the land of Israel. And yet there appears to have been very little law and very little order in Israel in those days. For twice we read the, the very bold statement that in those days Israel had no king. And twice we read the inevitable anarchic consequence that's added once even as a conclusion to the book of Judges. Everyone did as he or she saw fit. Now, in these COVID-infected days, we are all too aware of the consequences of disobeying the law, of breaking the rules. It's all too easy to, to come together in inappropriate numbers or to, to gather without face masks or cleaning our hands. And that can lead to ongoing infection to serious illness and sadly in too many cases it leads to death and that's why if we are meeting in the church at all it's in small numbers with correct spacing with hand gel with face masks we have to obey the law or else the consequences are serious and if you are concerned with how God deals with sin in the Old Testament, if you find it a bit strong, a bit unpalatable, let me tell you that in the New Testament, Jesus is even stronger in what he has to say about the eternal consequence of sin, of breaking the law. Because at the core of sin is that self-destructive rebellion. Whether it's against the, 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 the law of, of God, the rule of law, or ultimately against God himself. Sin is serious. Sin is destructive. Sin is corrosive. Sin is ultimately the barrier to life itself, leading only, as Jesus says, to death and to hell. And it is overcome, the Gospels tell us, only through the atoning death on the cross of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Our opening praise song from the band this morning included the lines, Here I am, Lord, I have heard you calling in the night. And that reference, of course, is to the experience of Samuel, who was the last and undoubtedly the greatest of the judges, dedicated to the Lord by his parents even before his birth. He was brought up in Shiloh under the tutelage of the high priest Eli. And while he was still a young man, we are told that all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognised that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. 
And as a judge, Samuel went on that annual circuit around the towns near his home. And sometimes we're told he acted as a priest as well. Samuel combined within himself the ministries of prophet, of priest and judge. But then we're told that when Samuel was old, however, he appointed his sons as judges and they did not walk in their father's ways. But they accepted bribes and they perverted justice. And so the elders of Israel demanded that Samuel should appoint a king to govern them. And in so doing, they were declaring that they were rejecting God as their king. For up until that moment, Israel had been a theocracy, a nation ruled by God. That had been the case since the beginning. And so Samuel remonstrated with the elders and warned them that their future kings would oppress them as a people. That the future kings would take their, their, their sons and their daughters, that they would constrict them into the army. But the people refused to listen. They said, no, we want a king to rule over us. Then we shall be like the other nations. You read that? Twice they demanded a king. Twice they gave the same answer. They wanted to be like the other nations. This precious nation that was to be a light in the darkness, that was to be a beacon of hope to the world. It was almost as if they simply switched off the light and they became as hopeless as the nations surrounding them. And the Lord knew that. And yet the Lord said to Samuel, acquiesce to their demand. It was a tragedy. For Israel had been chosen out of all the other nations precisely to be a holy nation, to be a people of God's own possession, to be different from everyone else around them. And friends, the same dilemma faces the people of God today. For our call is not to conformity to the world around us, but to a radical non-conformity. It's wonderful that in spite of Israel's seemingly inevitable backsliding, Yahweh remained faithful to his covenant. But you know, even more wonderful is the fact that in Jesus, God came to earth not only to judge, but to offer himself. And on the cross, to pay the price the penalty for your sin and for my sin. Becoming sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy. Faith.
sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow blessings all mine with ten thousand beside oh great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness morning by morning new mercies i see start of this month of November, starting as it does with All Saints Day, takes us into a season of remembrance. And we're especially conscious of those whose lives have shaped our lives, but who are no longer with us. In one sense, their absence serves to highlight the significance of all that they have given to us. And equally, we recall those who have shaped the life of our church and of our community and the faith that they have passed on to our generation. One of the hymns that's often sung on uh, All Saints Sunday is the hymn that says, For all the saints from whom their labours rest, who thee by faith before the world confess, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia, Alleluia. Captures well the thanksgiving of the church in this season of remembrance. And the vision that's unveiled to us in the book of Revelation sees the great multitude from every nation gathered before the throne of God and before the Lamb. For those who have endured the Lamb will be their shepherd and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. The book of Revelation reflecting the book of the prophet Isaiah. Our faith invites us to embrace that vision and in turn to share that vision with others. And so in the season of remembrance, we share the promise of the enduring presence and healing of God. Let us pray, and in our prayers, when we hear the words, Lord, in your mercy, we all respond, hear our prayer. Living God, we come to you and we are conscious that we do not come alone. For we come in the company of the saints of God and the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Living God, we come to your presence and we remember those who have given life and nurture to us. 
And we remember those who are no longer with us. And we give thanks for their lives. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Living God, we come to your presence and we pray for those who have suffered loss at this time. We ask that they will know the presence of the one who will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Living God, we come to your presence and hear again the promise of your enduring presence. We ask for ourselves and for others that we might know the promise of healing of God. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Living God, we come to your presence and we recall the hymns of faith that echo in our hearts. We lift up our hearts and we anticipate the praise of heaven offered to Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And God, our Father, as we pray for the nations of the world, all the nations going through this COVID-19 pandemic, we pray for scientists, for health professionals, for all who are caring for those who are sick. And we pray that people would respect the rules and the guidance that we might indeed care for one another. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And God our Father, you are God of all the nations, but particularly today we want to pray for the people of the United States of America as their elections draw to a close. Would you give that nation godly and wise and just leaders? Those serving in the Congress as well as the President for the next four years. Give a wisdom and a sensitivity and a sense of service for all the people. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And we draw our prayers, spoken and unspoken, before your throne, in the words which Jesus taught his friends, as we say together, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, friends, next Sunday is Remembrance Sunday and, of course, most of the Remembrance Sunday activities are just not going to happen this year. We're told that there will be coverage of the events in London and there will be coverage of events in Edinburgh. You might like to watch these next Sunday morning. We will have a short act of Remembrance starting at quarter to 11 on YouTube. And then our Sunday service next week will follow that and it will also be on YouTube only. On a day when we will be remembering those who have given their lives for king or queen or country, we will continue our journey from creation to Christ and we'll be hearing what the Bible has to say 
about the monarchy. So that's online only next Sunday. And then on the 15th of November, God willing, we will be online. And there will also be places available for those who book a place for the service in the St Andrew's Hall. So until next we gather as the people of God here in Creef, the blessing of God, the ever-present Father, the ever-living Son, the ever-active Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you now and always. Amen. <laughs>